in your hearts and let's praise him. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Brother Bo touched my heart. I know some of the stuff that Ken Bo preached today, and I know where it derives from. It doesn't derive from reading a book about it. It derives from first-hand, excruciating, traumatic practice of what he preached. And uh, this is a man who God has his hand on and whom I am proud to call my friend. God. Sometimes I worry about my preaching as I get older uh, because I feel some things so deeply that I'm afraid it's destroying my humor. Um, I get to thinking about what God's called us to do and I believe that God intends for us to pursue inroads and penetration of the whole world system as long as we have life and breath and regardless of what nation or people it's in we have a responsibility to be world Christians not worldly Christians in fact if you're one you can't be the other you can't be a world Christian and a worldly Christian at the same time if you're a worldly Christian you you're changing the definition of Christian. But I do think that we are called of God. I want to read a text to you and then talk a little bit about that. I think we're coming to a different day. Um, that's kind of scary to even say, but I do think we're coming to a different day that God's going to give us opportunities that we have previously not had. I believe when I say things like this that there is a spirit, a prophetic spirit involved in it that God, I don't have the answers of how God's going to do all of this, but I believe that there are people sitting here today, both preachers and laymen, and in the proper sense of the word, I think that distinction is going to be more blurred in the proper sense of the word. That is, in all of us understanding that the work is too big for any of us to set back and leave it up to anybody else to do, that all of us together are going to do the work of God and that we respect the ministry not because of intimidation or fear, but because we understand and have a revelation of God's offices and how God operates, and that I am obedient to those that are over me because that is part of my official position, is to be obedient to them, and that it doesn't have anything to do with some kind of egotistical intimidation, but rather it's an understanding. It's, a, it's based on my revelation that this is how God's kingdom works but that I also have a position and a work to do. I believe God's going to give that to us. There's a verse of scripture in 1 Samuel that all of you are acquainted with somewhere today in the next uh, few minutes. I'm going to, God willing, get back to this. In chapter 17, you, um, it's, uh, you can turn there because we may come back later, but the verse is very short. <coughs> and... Uh, found in verse 29 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. And David said, What have I now done 
and this is my text, title, message. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? I want to preach to you about this for a little while today. Amen. Everybody said, Lord, thank you for your word. Anoint the lips to speak. Anoint the ears to hear. Anoint the heart to receive. Anoint the spirit to act. In Jesus' name, let's praise him again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated. There is a lot of things that I am intrigued by. And one of them is, is I am intrigued by the immensity of God and the universe and the, and the kingdom of God that is coming in to the earth and that we have a role in that. All of that is very, very intriguing to me. The fact that God has called me and let me be a part of what he is doing and the fact that the one who is letting me be that part is the creator of the universe according to the word of God. That Jesus is not some demigod or just simply some human, <clears throat> but in some way that is beyond my ability to comprehend, John says in chapter 1, that everything that is made is made by him. And there is nothing that is made that is not made by him. And that he is the one that is established in the church and that I am a part of that and that we are an integral part of that in this century. He doesn't even have a John or an Apostle Peter or an Apostle Paul or any of those people here, nor is he here in flesh but that we actually are the people that God is using to do this is a staggering and quite profound idea that is also pretty sobering to recognize these things. When you think about Jesus, and I do not intend to preach on the Godhead today, but um, when you think about Jesus and that the Bible says of him uh, in scriptures like Micah 5 and 2, as I recall, um, uh, the Lord speaking to the little town, God's talking to a town called Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And he says, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be small among the thousands, yet out of thee shall he come forth, whose, yet out of thee shall he come forth, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You cannot get into the Bible and stay on the same chatty level that you can stay on when you're talking about finances or when you're talking about business or when you're talking about family even. All of those things pale into a, <clears throat> an insignificance when you begin to think about what you and I are really in. <clears throat> that Jesus is indeed the image of the invisible God. That God which cannot be seen, which created the universe. Uh, the God that is invisible, the Bible says. Jesus one place the Bible says dwells in a light that no man has seen nor can see. The Bible's very clear that God in his essential nature is invisible and that nobody has never seen him except as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and that Jesus is the image of that invisible God. 
And when you get to heaven, you're never going to see God except in the person of Jesus Christ. That all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in Him. He is the one that God has manifested Himself through, and He is indeed God manifested to us. Can you say praise the Lord? <clears throat> and everybody may have a little bit of that revelation, but we got that revelation. Hallelujah. And that is one of the things prominent amongst us. When you go back and think of all of these things and think that God is taking us and letting us be a part of taking that which is timeless and bringing it into that which is time, taking the timeless and causing it to intersect with time, and that we are a part of this, of what God is doing. It makes me very excited, and it also gives me a tremendous burst of energy to want to do what I can, to reach as far as I can as an individual, not just as a preacher, but as a saint of God. You have this same thing in you, that we don't end up living our life vicariously through someone else, simply by giving money to support somebody else although that is part of it also. In fact, money given to support can become an individual ministry. But all of this is meant to be extremely individual. If I had time today, I would <clears throat> be willing to run the risk of misunderstanding to show to you that God never allows anybody to stand between God and the individual. Nobody stands between God and the individual. And I know there's another sense in which the pastor stands in the gap and so forth. But when you look in the Bible in places where there is the line of authority given, such as Brother Bo was talking about, where uh, the head of the child is the woman, the head of the woman is the man, the head of the man is Christ, the head of Christ is God, the pastor's not even put in there. The reason is, is when God looks at this thing, he doesn't look at the pastor as being somebody apart from Christ. He just, he just, I know this is hard for you to receive maybe because we're just human, but he doesn't look at the pastor as being an intermediate step. He looks at the pastor as being God revealed to that church. I don't say we're qualified as far as our abilities, uh, but that's how God looks at it. God sees you as an individual and puts this question to us, is there not a cause? I have, I have difficulty um, staying uh, happy in life. I'm, I'm glad I'm saved. I think maybe if I wasn't saved, I might be a criminal. I, except I hate dishonesty, so I don't know what I'd be. But they say that many of the people who are criminals are criminals because they have such a low uh, uh, threshold for tolerance, for boredom. They can't stand boredom, so they want something exciting. So they go steal a car and they enjoy the chase. They don't even want the car sometimes, they just enjoy the chase. Um, uh, I, I just find the mundane things of life satisfactory only a little while. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I enjoyed, good, two of us understand. Um, I, enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed all the food and the fellowship, and uh, that is important to me, and that's important to all of us, but it only goes so far until you're ready to go uh, do something else. This is, uh, brother, brother, brother Cox said uh, last night, he said, I feel like this camp meeting's almost over. He said, I'm so tired. Hadn't even got started yet. Most of you hadn't even got here yet. Um, we, we're enjoying it. We're having a good time. But there's got to be more to it, folks, than this. Um, there's got to be. There's got to be an understanding of what God has put us into. 
There's so many things about this world that I do not fully understand. I've read things that boggled my mind. I don't hear some time back I read about uh, uh, some islands that they found up by the North Pole, uh, up where ice is 100 foot thick. They found these islands, and, and on these islands they didn't find anything. In fact, the whole islands were almost made out of thousands of bones of monkeys and, and other animals that only live in tropical areas. And there's, there's, there's tens of thousands of tons of them up there, which couldn't have been washed up there, which indicates just big, big changes in this world. Uh, I don't know uh, that, that the climate was different somewhere in the past. And they actually found one large uh, mastodon, dinosaur-like animal that, that was frozen, encased in the ice, and still had grass in its mouth, uh, that it had apparently in some quick and cataclysmic event been caught in that, in that uh, time frame. Uh, oh, we don't know when all that, uh, we don't know how all that happened. We, things are, are beyond us. There's a lot of things that we get so used to this little time frame that we live in and of all of the circumstances of being uh, located in time and space that we forget that there's an eternal part to us and that the kingdom of God deals with that eternal part and not with this part that is material and that is passing away. Um, I, I got to reading about um, this text that I read to you this morning, is in, is, this afternoon, is within the context of what I'm talking about. I got to reading a book and they said they, there are records that at one time, uh, we're talking about giants here, that there were giants. One book said that there was bones, they found hip bones that they figure were big enough for these giants to be uh, uh, as tall as over 19 feet tall at one time. That, I don't know that that's true, and 19 feet tall is, is pretty tall. From, uh, from that floor to that light is probably 19 feet. And um, if I saw a giant that big, I'd hit him as hard as I could in the shin and try to bring him down. Um, Suetonius, who is a great um, historian during the time of Jesus, said that during the time of Jesus, there were museums in Palestine. There were museums in Palestine during the times of Jesus that had the bones of giants there on display that people could go in and see these bones of these men that lived that were that big. And we found, uh, here's, here's David uh, fighting a giant that is not thought to be that tall, but that is thought to be somewhere between 9 and 13 feet tall reason I'm bringing all this out is because the Bible lets us know in 1 Corinthians 10 and other places that all of those Old Testament things are given to us for examples of what we are dealing with today. That we are dealing with giant forces. That we are dealing with powers that are beyond us. That we are dealing with uh, principalities and powers, which in those days was a Hebraic phrase for angelic forces on the devil's side that were fallen, that were evil, that we deal with these things. They have been around for thousands of years. And here we are, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, whatever your age is, and we are trying to cope with all of this and establish the kingdom of God in the earth in the middle of all of this. And we face all of these things, uh, uh, which is why the Bible says, not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, because the spirit of the Lord is the only thing greater than all of these things. Can you say praise the Lord? Even when you get in the Bible, you find, you find strange things. And I'm not going to go into all this stuff today, but you find scriptures in Jeremiah that seem to be a window that was slid open for a little while that lets you look back into a time that seems to be prehistoric, back before Adam and Eve, and stuff that, that's, that's hard to understand. You look in uh, other scriptures and you find stuff that seem to indicate that in this world in which we live, there are some, there are some things far beyond, stranger than, than uh, what our minds are able to conceive. We are in the middle of all of that as the people of God, and we are connected with all of that as the people of God in an eternal way, that sinners are not connected. There's a, there's a connection here. When we talk about this uh, giant forces that we face, the Bible talks about giants. The Bible gives us examples of giants that um, some people don't realize how many giants the Bible talks about. I just uh, made a quick little survey here uh, before I preach to you today. And you will remember when the children of Israel were going into the land of Egypt, I mean into the, out of the land of Egypt, into the land of, of Canaan, the promised land. When they got to the, the edge, they sent in the 12 spies. Ten come back, good re bad report. Two came back with good report. One of the things that they said is the land is beautiful. The land is worth conquering. The land is filled with milk and honey. That's what I think about going deeper in God. I think there's stuff in God that none of us have reached. I, I think there's stuff beyond salvation. I believe there's power and glories. I believe there's grapes as big as basketballs, so to speak. I believe that there's milk and honey that flows everywhere. I believe there's things maybe you've tapped into, but I confess that I haven't tapped into. I believe there's power in my ministry that I've never seen. I believe there's anointing in my preacher that can pull people off the pews uh, and put them in an altar before they hardly know what happened to them. Uh, I haven't tapped into all of that, not especially on a regular basis, but I believe it's there. I believe there's wisdom that God can give me to know how to build a church uh, that is beyond anything my city's ever seen of any denomination or stripe. I haven't done that, but I believe the potential is there and the cause is there. I believe the glory of God is wanting to give that to us. Uh, I believe it really is wanting to give that to us. Oh, if time would permit me today to get into all of these kinds of things. I had to do a study in some doctoral classes on leadership. And uh, one of the things that they have said is the, uh, a word that's been passed around uh, about leadership called, uh, is a leader, uh, does he have charisma? Um, uh, Max Weber and some others brought it in to, to uh, vogue to use the word uh, is a leader charismatic, not speaking religiously, but speaking as he a gifted kind of person. And uh, they've decided that there is no, that charismatic leadership is not, is not a good way to judge it, that it's not even a good word to use, that, that there is no such thing. And they've kind of, this goes back and forth, but now the leadership stuff in America has kind of shifted back to where they say uh, the nuts and bolts of it. Does, does he know how to organize? And does he know how to motivate people? And does he know how to, all of these kind of earthly things? And and they moved away from over here, the gifted side. I'm proposing to you today that potentially we have leadership among us that is far greater uh, than anything the world has or could ever possibly develop no matter what they did. Because the Bible lets us know uh, that we are gifted people, that, that we as the people of God are gifted. The Holy Ghost is a gift. And the Bible tells us that the grace of God lies upon us. And grace uh, in Greek is charis, from which we get charisma. Uh, all of us have the grace of God. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are what they call the charismata. God gives us the gifts of the Spirit. If you look at all of those gifts, they're given to give leadership. 
They're given to empower us to do the job. Gifts of faith and miracles and healings and, and insight and wisdom and knowledge. Uh, these aren't things that we ought to just read about in our Bibles. Uh, but somehow there ought to be something in us that says, I want that incorporated in my ministry. I want the power of God to teach me how to break down a nation where one man can put 10,000 to flight and where two can put 100,000 to flight. I like God's math. Uh, I want to be motivated by it. I want to be filled with it. I don't want to get satisfied to be just one of the bunch uh, that comes and gets together. And I, and I want to get together. And we need to get together. But there ought to be something in us that says when we go from here, we are the people that God called to lead the earth. We are the people that God made the salt of the earth. We're not waiting on nobody else. Uh, the President doesn't know what he's doing. The Senate doesn't know what they're doing. The Congress doesn't know what they're doing. But bless God through the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Uh, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge can come upon us and we can do it in Jesus name just talking about it motivates me but it discourages me when I think how few people probably get the idea but I want it to happen I want it to happen brother spell I believe our music ought to be the best in the world and I'm proud of you because I think you're one of them I believe when people come to our church they ought to hear music like they've never heard it ought to be so anointed of the Holy Ghost and it ought to be the best it can be but there ought to be the glory of God in everything we do. Oh, I want it, and I believe you do too. Amen. And I believe God's going to give it to us. But there's a lot of things to oppose us. Amen. It's just a lot of stuff that you've got to put up with. One of the things when they went into that land was that they were, they said, the sons of Anak are there. And we are like grasshoppers in their sight. And they are giants. And I thought... I never really studied that until some time back. I got to looking at this. I thought that that was a statement of fear. Well, they were afraid. But I thought they were exaggerating until they got to study them. And most of the land of Canaan was filled with giants. Uh, by the time David came along, several hundred years later, there wasn't many giants left. And so Goliath stands out in a way that others didn't. But he was a descendant of this same group of Anakim, or sons of Anak, Anak, that, that Joshua faced way back here uh, when they were going in to take the land. The land was full of these giants. They were everywhere. They were not only in the land of Palestine, but if you get to looking at your Bible, they also were in Moab. They also were in Edom. The whole area where God had promised the people that he was going to give them the land was filled with, with these giant men. And not only was the promised land filled with giants, but everything that surrounds the promised land was filled with giants. Everything around receiving the blessings of God. You, you can't keep shooting pot guns and expect to be much for God. They're, they're, I, I don't like people's attitude that make fun of studying the Word of God and say, bless God, we don't need to know about Daniel and we don't need to know about John and we don't need to know about... Revelation and others say we don't need to know about revival. I want to tell you, we need to know about everything that has to do with the Word of God. We need to know about everything that has to do with worship. We need to know about everything that has to do with influence. We need to know everything that has to do with power. We need to know everything that has to do with prayer. No, oh, let's clap our hands and praise the Lord. I'll tell you, when we get our eyes on this level, we're going to get off this idea of turf building. 
We're going to get off this idea, are you in the organization or out of the organization? When we get far enough, and there's guilt everywhere, and I'm not throwing stones, I'm just telling you the way it is. When we get far enough, people's not going to be protecting little two-bit fences that they put up. When we get far enough, we're going to see the world and the need of the world to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to care about that. The common bond is going to be the Holy Ghost and the message of Acts 2.38 and the glory of God. And I see it coming, brother. There's things already changing that all the attempts of men cannot stop. That God's breaking it down. That the Holy Ghost is moving. And God's saying, I'm going to bring my people into a place of prominence and influence and nothing's going to hold them back. Come on, let's clap our hands and praise Him again. I want to tell you this is no time to worry about people that's putting up little old man-made defenses against this and trying to protect little old traditional ideas of how God's going to do it. The Holy Ghost is bigger than that. The work of God's bigger than that. The Spirit's bigger than that. We're bigger than that. There ain't nothing can stand against this. What I'm telling you is going to roll over all that little old piece of cornflake kind of stuff like a steamroller, and the power of God's going to bring us into a place of His glory where we can do what God called us to do. Brother Wilson, I don't think it's a day of revival. I don't, I'm a little bit wild right now, but I don't care what you think. I don't even care if it's a day of revival. I'm going to have revival anyway. I don't care if it's the right time in the dispensation to have revival. It don't make me no difference. I'm going to have revival anyway. You say, well, how can you preach that? I got so much stuff to preach, I can't get back to my text yet. The way I can preach that is Jesus gave me the right to preach that. When he said a man had hungry people come to his house at midnight. Wrong time to be coming to the house. Wrong time to be wanting bread. Wrong time of the dispensation, if you please, to be asking for it. It's night time. But Jesus told us that to let us know. As long as there's number one, hungry people, and as long number two as there's somebody willing to go knock on the door and say, I got hungry people, I need bread for them, then brother, you can have bread. Everybody else may be in the bed, but we're going to be knocking on the door for bread. And God's got a revival going on in this world. But everything that has to do with revival is surrounded with giants. Giants are strange creatures. In fact, if you have your Bible, look with me in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy talks about these giants. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 2. God's telling them what land he gave them, what land he didn't give them. And he says, verse 9, The Lord said unto me, Moses says, Distress not the Moabites. Verse 9, chapter 2, Deuteronomy. Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar unto the children of Lot for a possession. The emims, everybody said emims, 
The Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims. Now the Anakims, the sons of Anak, are the ones that Goliath descended from that the children of Israel confronted when they went into the land of Israel. But here's some Emims. Sound like some kind of bird. These Emims are dwelling near this land. In times past, look at verse 10. The Emims dwelt therein in times past. When was times past? When do these giants dwell here in times past? How far in times past? And who were they? A people great. They dwelled there before Moab did. And many and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants, as were the Anakims. But the Moabites called these giants Emims. Look at verse 12. The Horims, Horims, also dwelt in Seir before time. Before time, back somewhere. But the children of Esau succeeded them. So here's giants called Anakims, here's giants called Emims, here's giants called Horims. And then if you go on, he said, I give land to Anam, or to Ammon. Look at verse 20. That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt there in an old time, whenever that was. And the Ammonites called them Zamzumims, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, but the Lord destroyed them. And then if you look in verse 23, and the Avims, which dwelt in Hazerim, and the Kaphtarims, which came forth out of Kaphtar. So we got all these, we got six or seven categories here in the Bible of giants. So we don't have to just believe Suetonius or somebody else. The Bible tells us that there was all these giants. Uh, there was Emims and Anakims and Horims and Avims and Kaphtarims and Zamzumims. I looked up the word, different one of these words, and I looked up Zamzumims. Beware, come the Zamzumims. And Zamzumins means those who make noises when they eat. Zamzumims. Brother Cox said, that's what we are. Last night while I was eating, it sounded like a group of Zamzumims. Giants. Uh, another interesting thing I noticed in chapter 3 of Deuteronomy. It said, I give this land to Manasseh and so forth, verse 13, all the region of Argob <coughs> with all Bashan, which was called the land of giants. And it says of the king of Bashan, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. We're talking about a giant's bed. The Bible is talking about it. And if you study this, you'll find that apparently his bed had been taken after he was killed and put in a museum. And somebody went in there and measured the bed. It was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit 
of a man. Some people believe that a cubit's 18 inches, which is the figure Brother Bo was using a while ago when he said uh, Goliath was 9 or 10 feet tall. Other people have said a cubit is 2 feet, <coughs> which would make this bed um, somewhere around 14 feet to 18 feet long and would have made it somewhere between 6 and 8 feet wide. It's the kind of bed Larry Booker needs. And the only guy I know that sleeps with six pillows. And this giant dwelt in this bed and evidently filled it out. And he was one of those that was opposing the people of God. There are some things about giants, other things that I want to convey to you. When we think of giants, we usually think of giants as someone who is overgrown. And most people that are overgrown that we see are overgrown in the sense of being um, abnormal. They don't look normal. Maybe their jaw is extremely craggy and they're ungainly and they can't walk very coordinated. And we think of it as kind of like a giant being some big uh, uncoordinated individual. Um, giants were not that way. If you read the Bible, you will see that giants <clears throat> were extremely athletic. They were extremely agile. They were very dexterous. Many of them had six fingers instead of five. And many of them had six toes instead of five, which gave them additional grip and gave them additional uh, balance and lateral stability and movement. They were very, very agile and very, very strong. So we need to remember that when we're making fun of the devil. Um, another thing about them is their personality, when you get to studying them, is a personality that is very much like the personality of a successful athlete today. The personality of giants, you can see this in fact in Goliath, where I read from David. The personality of giants was one of very great ego. The personality of giants was one of very great confidence in their own ability. The personality of giants was one that was cocky, if you please, and felt like they could take on anybody, anytime, any place, and that they could do it in their own strength and didn't need a god or gods. They had what it took. Not only were they that way, but history records that they were very tyrannical. They were, they were tyrants. They were bullies. They, they would walk over everybody that they could. I believe this is true of the strongest of demonic forces, that they are, that this typifies what they are like, that they will trample on whoever they can trample on, that they glory in their ability to destroy the weak rather than seeing their strength as something to help the weak, as a gift to help the weak 
to come to strength. They were all of these things and a whole lot more. When you read your Bible, you will always see that there is not one single example in history, anywhere, anytime, of a giant being on the Lord's side. Giants were always, without exception, no breaking of the rule, giants were always opposed to the work of God. We can't wait for a giant to arise among us to lead us against the Goliaths of this world. God doesn't use giants. God uses giant killers. Giants are in opposition to God. I personally believe that that's because of their origin, which we're not going to get into today, but if you've studied your Bible, you already know what I'm talking about. I believe their whole origin is demonic. I believe the whole set that they come from is demonic. I believe they're opposed to everything that God is doing, one of which is, way back at this time, way back here in Deuteronomy, was to bring the world's salvation through the perfect human being. I believe that giants are an aberration, that giants, one of the intent was to destroy the lineage through which the Messiah would come, to destroy it by a perversion of the human race, or to destroy it by, if that didn't work, by killing the lineage from which he would come. Somebody says, well, how come there's no giants today then, uh, physical giants? Because the lineage has come. That didn't work. It failed. And so that is no longer the plan. But today there are spiritual giants that are in opposition, that have all these characteristics that I personally believe empowered these um, giant, abnormal human specimens. They were never on the Lord's side. And they always opposed God's people. They were never sympathetic to God's people or to the things of God. Another thing about giants is that they're all kin to one another. If you look back here, you'll find that from these Anakims came these other giants. They're, they're all cousins. They're all kinfolk. They all network back to a common beginning. They are not, they are not just disparately found here and there. They were all located, as far as can be discovered, in one area of the world. And they proliferated in that area. They know each other. They're kin to one another. If you please, they fellowship one another. Um, who was the guy with Joshua? Caleb, when he went in and as one of the 12 spies and they wouldn't take the land, when they come back out and they wandered 40 years, when they came back, Caleb on his spy mission never forgot what he had seen. Caleb, when he was in there, saw the hill that was the headquarters, <laughs> that was the governmental headquarters of Canaan under the giants. It was the hill of the Anakims. It was the hill where the main giant lived and where he ruled from. It was the castle of the giants, if you please. It is interesting to me and more than a coincidence that when Caleb came back, 
He went to Joshua 40 years later and said, when we go into the land, I remember this hill. I knocked on that gate at that castle. I had them come and tell me I couldn't get an audience with the head giant. They told me that I was just a little scum to get out of here. But Joshua, it's been 40 years, but I'm back. I'll tell you, it scares me when I hear preachers and saints say, well, we've tried to reach the world before. We've tried to reach our city before. We've tried to do all, all of this before. We couldn't do it. I'm tired. I'm giving up. That bothers me. Folks, we're going to have to develop some supernatural patience. We're going to have to have some supernatural long-suffering. We're going to have, some, have to have some supernatural persistence that hangs on when everything else is falling apart, when everybody else has given up, when everybody else says it can't be done, when everybody else says we're going to wander the rest of our lives. It's going to have to be somebody like Caleb that comes back and says, it's been 40 years and I haven't got it yet. But Joshua, there's one mountain that I want in there. It's the mountain where the giants live. They're there now. They were there before. They've whipped me before. They whipped my friends before. They intimidated us before. But I want them to know I'm back. Let me go knock on that gate again, Joshua. I want to announce to them that I'm coming back. And I want that mountain. And I'm going to put my castle on that mountain. Because God has given that land to me. I believe what I'm preaching to you. I said, I believe what I'm preaching to you. I believe the city spiritually where I pastor is mine. I don't believe it belongs to people that don't have the truth. I don't believe it belongs to the professors at the college. I don't believe it belongs to the city fathers. I don't believe it belongs to the sports heroes. I believe it belongs to the apostolic church. I believe God's given me dominion over that city. I believe God's given me authority over that city. I believe God's opening doors in that place where something can be done to propagate the gospel. I don't believe everybody's going to be saved, but I believe that when it comes to the point that people seek salvation, they won't be going to other churches. They will know almost intuitively that when you really want salvation, where you go is down there to the Rock Church on the corner of Bradshaw and Calvine. That's where you find the real thing. Some of you in smaller cities have that right now. You know what I'm talking about, and I thank God that you do. We need to just keep pushing out. And so Caleb comes back, knocks on that gate, and takes that mountain. You notice he didn't say, give me this plain like Lot did. Give me this cushy position. He said, give me this mountain. And I want this mountain where Mr. Tuff lives, because God gave me this land. Can you say praise the Lord? Now let's worship him again. There's one more thing that I want to point out about giants before I just kind of get off that and get on with this because I know some of you is really interested in lunch. Uh, and it's an important point. When you look in the Bible, you'll find you can never bluff a giant. You can't say boo 
and make him run away. He believes that he can whip you. Now, if you've got God on your side, you say, there's no way he can whip me. But that don't keep him from believing it because he's living in deception. Because they're all deceived. They believe that they can whip you. And our example is where I read my text, Goliath. Goliath wasn't blowing smoke, so to speak, when he told David, you little scrawny runt, you come out here with a staff to fight me. Come out here, I'm going to feed your little scrawny body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He believed that. He thought he was going to do that. And one of the things that's important for us to do that David did is David did not allow the opinion of Goliath to shape his opinion of himself and of his God. Brother Wilson, I just don't think I can do it. The reason you don't think you can do it is because there's forces telling you you can't do it. The reason... Look, there's things I'm trying to do at home. I need people... I wrote a letter to one man the other day. He's not in anybody's church, so relax. I said, look, I've got the inroads to establish this college, but I don't have the money. You got the money. I got the open door from God. I need the money. And I said, I'm not begging, but I'm telling you where we're at. I believe that there's men and women here today that God has touched but wants to touch even further. That when he blesses us financially or in other ways of leadership, there is an intent by God that we take stewardship of that and get the revelation of what God wants us to do with that. His personal responsibility. He didn't leave this out here that I am getting this job done by sending my ten bucks up into some missionary group. They, he didn't leave it out there that I'm getting all that I can do done by simply being faithful to church, and I do think that's something to be commended. I'm, I, and I don't want to put nobody on a guilt trip. I want to challenge you. Putting people on a guilt trip doesn't help any of us. We need... We need Positive, proactive, challenging. Can you say amen? <clears throat> well, some of you believe it and the rest aren't sure what I'm talking about anyway, probably. So, anyway, let her rip. Everybody said praise the Lord. And so here is, here is this boy who is making the need his personal responsibility. When he got there, David refused. If you, if you read this closely, uh, um, Goliath, had, had come out on the mountain and had yelled across the valley to the Israeli army. And he said to the soldiers, Ye are Saul's followers. Saul's army. That's how Goliath formulated in their mind who they could depend on. If you read it close, when David confronted Goliath, he didn't say, who are you to defy Saul's army? He looks at Goliath and says, who do you think you are to defy God's army? 
Don't let the devil push it back to where we are dependent upon one another and our human ability. There's a higher force in this. There's a supernatural element in the church. My God, sometimes we're so afraid of the supernatural. We'll make all kinds of excuses for not believing God for the supernatural. We'll talk about all the wildfire we've seen. We'll talk about all the free Pentecost we've seen. We'll talk about all the stuff out there that's been ridiculous that we've seen and, and use all of that as some kind of guise to cover our own fear of the supernatural movement of the Holy Ghost. I want it all. And God is able to use us. We don't have to be great in this world. We have to be like David, not willing to let uh, Goliath define our identity. The second thing David did is he refused to accept Saul's definition of his identity. Saul was an old warrior well-trained, who knew the ins and outs of battle. He himself stood head and shoulders above everybody else in his nation, and yet he was like a miniature compared to Goliath, and he also was intimidated. We must be careful here where I'm talking now, but we must also see what happened here that David respectfully said, in essence, Saul... I cannot allow you to define who I am. And I cannot allow your fears to define what I can do. And I cannot allow all of the misgivings that you have about the overall work to keep us in subjection of intimidation to this big giant called Goliath who is our enemy. And so David refused. He did it right but nevertheless, he did it. He refused to allow his superior fears to dominate his thinking about what he could do by the help of God. And thirdly, he refused to allow his brother's fears to define for him what he could do. That may be the greatest one for many people. Because the moment a real move of God starts in Jesse Hudson's church, it's not going to get very far until there's going to be brethren saying he's got to be compromising because it ain't happening at my place. Somebody told me as recently as last year that they'd heard somebody say, Brother Cox said, Brother Cox really don't have any right to be pastor in that church because when he took it, he'd only had the Holy Ghost two weeks. How many years ago was that? Whoever said that, I'll guarantee you they're not pastoring a church like this one. They don't have what's happening there, what's happening here. They, don't, they haven't seen the success, I'll guarantee you, that's been seen here already and the success that's been seen here is dropping the bucket what god wants to do and what the cox is going to believe god to do and what this church by faith if god tarries is going to do 
But as recently as 12 months ago, somebody told me, they said, I heard somebody say, Brother Cox really doesn't have any right to be pastor in that church anyway because he only had the Holy Ghost two weeks when he got, uh, when he got elected as pastor. And I wanted to say, I don't know who it was. It was secondhand when I got it. I wanted to say, what kind of nuts are we fellowshipping with? That's 27 years ago talking about something that Brother Cox didn't choose in the first place that just happened that way, and the proof's in the pudding, brother. strange thinking do we have that we would go back 27 years and try to pick up some reason why we shouldn't commend what God's doing through a people in Pine, Louisiana. I'll tell you what kind of thinking it is. It's the kind of thinking of people that haven't got it going themselves and they're afraid to face that because that looks on the inner recesses of what I really am. That makes me face the prices I haven't really paid. That makes me look at the things that I really don't know about the dynamics of revival. That makes me face the problems that's in my own soul. And that's too much to handle because I've already been pastoring for 15, 20 years myself, whoever this is. And I've already got it set. And I've already got an income. And the church is already used to the level that I'm pastoring at. And if I get all fired up and spizzed up, it's going to upset some of the people. And then I've got to start all over. And so they've got paradigm paralysis. They're set in one way of looking at stuff that may have worked 20 years ago. But now they can't get out of that. And they can't move on to believe God for them to grow and to grow and to grow. Because the brethren have defined for them what they're willing to believe God for. makes me so mad in the Holy Ghost of course his brothers said hey pipsqueak who do you think you are coming up here coming up here and acting like you're somebody See, if anybody, God really starts blessing them, that's our first thing is, they must think they're somebody. Well, this is going over like a crocheted bathtub. Who do they think they are? I'll tell you the way to overcome the who do they think they are. It's for all of us to get in the same boat of revival. And then we don't feel like we'll be intimidated by a brother that's got 25 getting the Holy Ghost on Sunday night. If I've only got two getting the Holy Ghost on Sunday night, it makes me feel a lot better. If you've got 50, I can handle that. I know i got somebody getting it anyway. And the inertia that David had to go through with his brothers and with Saul and with the army and with Goliath and all that was a hundred times worse than facing the giant with the sling. Before he ever got to the giant to get the victory, he had to be willing to wade through all of that stuff. Do you believe he experienced some loneliness? Brother Jeff Dykes? 
I used your name because it'll be on tape. And tapes get around. Jeff Dykes, D-Y-C-H-E-S. Is that how you spell it? Dykes. Yeah. Do you believe that David felt lonely when nobody understood? All he's trying to do is work for God. Against the common enemy that they were all facing. But all of their family is going to be wiped out if they're in victory. And yet, rather than have the victory, they'd rather intimidate David. That shows you how convoluted the thinking of people are who are carnal. Oh, hallelujah. But this boy, he didn't get bitter. He got better. He didn't get impatient. He knew who his God was. And when he finally faced Goliath, everybody was scared of Goliath. If you ever read history about old battles years and years ago, I'm talking about when it was just heathens out there with swords and clubs and spears before they even had bows and arrows. When they went to battle, terror would grip those armies so strong. Some of the things they did before they actually engaged in battle because of the terror that was on the camp all the superstitions and all the stuff mixed into these people. The terror was so great that people could hardly stand the stress of it before they ever engaged in battle. And here they are. David, to be able to kill Goliath, first ratchets up the level of terror, which is one reason they're all against him. Can I say that again? Before David could face Goliath, he cranked up the level of terror in the camp of the Lord's people. And the way he did it is by saying, <clears throat> I'm not willing to live here under these circumstances. And they all said, oh God, no, we know what that implies. He's going to get us all killed by going out here and doing something stupid. Let's just stay here, prisoners of fear. Let's just stay in this cave, prisoners of intimidation. Let's just stay back here. We can't do anything. Let's just stay back here because we can't get the job done. Let's just keep regressing and backing up. I want to tell you, you'll keep backing up until you shrivel up and your whole psyche is about the size of a green pea. You can't, you can't do that. You can't get ahead that way. I'm telling you. You say, I'll keep backing up till I find an answer. You're not going to find an answer backing up. You're going to have to ratchet up your human courage and your godly faith and start walking forward and saying the only way we're going to get it done is walk on out there. And that strikes terror in the hearts of God's complacent, intimidated, fear-filled people. But it's got to be done anyway. You know, I mentioned tapes getting around. When I, what I just said just then, when that gets around on tape, there'll be preachers sitting in their living room. They'll be sitting in their living room. 
three or four of them sitting there. And they're listening to this tape. And they're hearing us scream like we were just doing. Somebody looks up at the other guy and says, where's that happening at? Where's he preaching at? Ah, it's down at old, what's that old guy's name down there? Old Cox. Old, who is he? I don't know. Ah, he's just one of those old troublemakers down there. What's Wilson doing down there? Ah, can't get nowhere else to preach, so he just takes whatever he can get. He's banned, man. He's contraband. And, 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 and I'm talking about, you know, how, how David strikes terror, whatever I just said. Play the tape. You'll get it. And uh, one of them reaches over, clicks the tape off, and says, you know, he must be some kind of smart aleck to be talking like that. You know, he must not have any respect for anybody. You know, who does he think he is? See, that's how it goes. Do you think that's what he's doing with David? I mean, I'm not David, but I'm preaching like him right now. Now, if I could keep that annoying on me all the time, I'd be like David. And I'm trying. But what's on me right now is like David. You may not believe it, but maybe you don't know what the spirit of David is, see? So maybe you'll have to trust my word for it. But David, his brothers are sitting around saying, who is this screwball? How did he get these ideas? Well, he's always been a little kooky. Yeah, well, then if you know so much, get your armor on, big shot, and go out there and face Goliath. Oh, no, you've got to understand, we need to talk about that and devise a better plan. So we're on our 567,000th devised plan, which is an excuse for not going out there and facing Goliath. Well, tell y'all are excited about this. Shut up! Just kidding. He's my brother. If anybody intimidates people, it's you. <laughs> Hallelujah. We got people going off to seminars, people that don't even have the Holy Ghost saying, you know, and uh, seminars like how to break the 200 barrier. And Brother Morton's pastoring four churches and probably every one of them's running 200 or more. And the whole bunch, the main one's running, I mean, I don't know, probably at least a thousand. But we can't, we don't want to get too close to him because he's, Wow, when he gets mad, that one eye goes cockeyed. He, 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 won't, he, he can't tell you how to get a crowd, but he can tell you how to get an apostolic church. It just depends on what you want. Final point. David meets Goliath. 
Everybody's intimidated by Goliath, but there's a reason David's not intimidated. Goliath starts all of his blather. You little kid. He disdained David. I'm going to feed you to the fowls here and the beast of the field. Come up here, you little scrawny brat. I think that's how the devil looks at us. Well, when he looks at some of these guys over here, he don't say scrawny, but I mean, you know. And David looks at Goliath and says, You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. You uncircumcised Philistine. Those two words are the key to David's boldness and courage. Uncircumcised Philistine. Because David knew that he was a covenant man. He was in covenant with God that he does God's work and God does his work. David knew that he was a covenant man because the sign of that covenant was circumcision. And when David said, you uncircumcised Philistine, what he was really saying is, you don't have no covenant with God and you may be bigger than me as far as human flesh, but I'm in covenant with somebody bigger than you. Hallelujah. I was at a fellowship meeting one time, and we went down in the basement of the Madera Church. It's four years there. Winford, two was there. And I was about, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. And I went down in the basement. That's where the restrooms were in the church where Brother Bo used to pastor. And I went down into the restroom, and they were kind of small and crowded. And there was a boy in there about 16 years old who was a bully and ended up being in the mafia probably to this day. I mean, he really was. It's no exaggeration. And, and so we were, the, just the two of us were in there. And while I was washing our hands, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to beat you up. And I was about 13, and he's a lot bigger than I was. Now, when you're 50 and 47, those three years don't make much difference. When you're 16 and 13, it makes a difference. And brother, I begin to think. Brother Cox, I said to myself, I'm fixing to get my little rear end whipped if I don't do something quick. I got to do something here or I'm in bad trouble because I can't whip this guy. And so if you can't whip him with your body, you got to whip him with your mind. And I got to thinking, what can I do? I mean, all this is running through my mind. I mean, just... And I got it. And I looked up at him. I said, my big brother's upstairs. He looked at me because all bullies have this cowardly side anyway. And he said, oh, kid, I was just kidding. You know I didn't mean that. He meant it. I can't even remember if my big brother was upstairs or not, to tell you the truth. I can repent later of that one because I was fixing to take a licking. <laughs> David knew he was a covenant man. David knew his big brother was upstairs. David knew, you may whip me, buddy, but I got somebody that's going to whip up on you because I'm a covenant man. I've obeyed the word. I believe in the covenant. 
You can say baptism in Jesus' name doesn't make any difference. You can say the infilling of the Holy Ghost doesn't make any difference. Uh, but brother, those are signs of the covenant. Uh, and I've got the signs of the covenant on my life. Uh, and I'm a covenant man. Uh, and God's with a covenant man. Come on, let's stand up and clap our hands and praise the Lord together. Now let me finish this by saying I love everybody. I love everybody. But we're talking about people going to hell. And we're talking about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And I don't believe it's time to dance around the issues any longer. It's time to step front and center and say, if you don't agree, then let's sit down and talk about it. But let's don't keep scallywagging around behind each other's backs. Let's don't keep trying to kill people behind their backs by trying to murder them with the most refined form of murder, which is slander. Let's get out of that old game and step front and center like men and sit down and say, let's talk about it. And let's get on with the work of God. Let's clap our hands and praise Him again. I'm in this church, this glorious church. I did not join. I've been born, I've had a new birth. Some glorious day, oh yes, I'm going to sail away. I'm in this church. I'm in this church. I'm in this church. This glorious church. This glorious church. I did not join, I've been born, I've had a new birth. Oh, let's Some glorious up. day, I'll sail away. Oh. Come on, sing it. In this church. Sing it, sister. Oh, I'm in this church. Come on. This glorious church. Oh, I yes. did not join. I've been born. I've had a new birth. Some glorious day. The way. Sing it. One more time. Church. Come on, sing. Well, I'm in this church. This glorious church. Come on, let's sing it. Let's clap our hands. Let's glorify join, God. I've been let's have an old I've Holy Ghost flow down here. Amen. Some let's let's day, reach out. I'm going to sail away. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I'm, I'm in this church. I'm in this church. Come on, I'm put in your hands together and sing it. Glorious church. This glorious church. I did not join. I've been born. I've had a new birth. Hallelujah. Some glorious day, I'm going to sail away. It's not my works, but by His grace, I'm in this church. I'm in this church, this glorious church. I did not join. I've been born. I've had a new You're glad you're in the church this afternoon. Some glorious day. Hallelujah. I'm going to sail away. By God's grace, not by my works, I'm in this church. Well, it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Everybody, well, it's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood.